Previously, on Heavy Metal Historian, we discovered the influence of historical people or historical events such as World War I on metal, but also looked into the origins of metal and several of its subgenres. Now, after uncovering the origins of thrash metal and studying the rise of Metallica, Testament, Tankard and others in our preceding episodes, we now move into the 21st century to look at the revival of the genre from a variety of countries and examine this thrash renaissance spreading across the planet. We look into the future of thrash metal. Welcome to our 14th episode. I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. If we were to look into the future or what the future holds for thrash metal, it's important that we backtrack a little bit first, a couple of decades, to find out how we got where we are now. A different beginning was emerging in 1991. With the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, Alive by Pearl Jam, Man in the Box by Alice in Chains, and the following success of these bands, among many others, indicated a significant shift in the music industry. Gone was the hairspray and cosmetics of glam metal that dominated MTV, and in its place was a new genre, one based on the susceptibilities of early metal and especially early punk. The music scene from Seattle exploded on the world stage and was pigeonholed grunge by music critics, much to the irritation of the artists of the scene. Out of the glam metal movement from the 80s, a few moved forward with some success in the 90s, though nothing on their previous levels. Motley Crue, Wasp, Van Halen and Bon Jovi altogether attained some notable moments through their second decade, but other artists like Danger Danger, Warrant and Tough and even Rat saw a major decline or complete breakups during the time. But thanks to the success of Metallica's Black Album and the truth that the bands had been a viable underground alternative to the popular music scene, the thrash groups from the 1980s were insulated from the severity of the decline suffered by a majority of the glam outfits. Bands like Testament, Creator and Anthrax weathered the 90s well, while Metallica towered beyond them all, riding the crest of a successful wave that would propel them to further heights in those years. However, the shift into the 1990s also saw a change in sound for many of the thrash bands. Being affected by the marked alteration in sound taken by Metallica in songs like Enter Sandman, many of their colleagues followed suit, with groups like Testament and Exodus attempting more commercialized music, and Megadeth issuing a countdown to extinction with their symphony of destruction. Diversifying attempts of the first thrash artists did gather them some additional exposure, many of their core fanbase felt a level of betrayal. On the same level as the sellout group for Metallica's fans, many of the followers missed the harder-edged shredding riffs backed by the congruence of the double bass rhythm. To the relief of some, two bands from the Big Four didn't stray too far from the heaviness. 
Anthrax, with new singer John Bush, moved away from the far shredding, but focused instead on heaviness and a stomping method that was welcomed by metal fans, and their collaborations with another guitarist by the name of Daryl Abbott would facilitate some further relevance to the fans of the era. On the other hand, Slayer, instead, stayed close to their roots. While they did integrate some minor components of groove metal and new metal in various places, Slayer continued to put out solid thrash releases, providing the thrashy alternative fans were after, safeguarding successful longevity for the band. But what kept thrash even further relevant during the difficult 90s was the aforementioned musician Daryl Abbott. Taking the name Dimebag Daryl, and as a part of the groove metal outfit Pantera, the group pushed the envelope with each subsequent release they made, and integrated a significant amount of thrash techniques into their own sound. Along with Pantera, Sepultura also kept thrash in the cognizance of fans, so together with Anthrax and Slayer, these four bands held the harder edge side of metal active, while the other bands either pursued more mainstream sounding approaches or disbanding overall. Despite this, it just wasn't enough for the fans. Competing with the achievement of grunge, and the commercialized Metallica becoming watered down with albums like Load and Reload, for countless metalheads, the sheer concept of thrash metal was dead. In turn, the metalheads drawn to the harder edge stuff began pursuing metal that was more extreme than thrash ever was. The genre that they found a fresh home in was also the one that would eventually bring thrash new life in the 21st century. It was in death metal where numerous fans sought their answers. Originating from the first extreme bands of the like of Celtic Frost and Venom, it was Chuck Schuldiner's outfit Death from which the genre took its namesake, with Chuck himself being dubbed as the father of death metal. Several notable bands would follow in his footsteps in developing the brutality of death metal, including Morbid Angel, Cannibal Corpse, Obituary, and Diocide. And as the grindcore movement split out from death metal, hardcore, and crossover thrash, over in Norway, a new alternative genre of metal was developing that would also help fuel the resurgence of thrash in the 21st century. Primarily received as the counter-answer to both thrash metal and death metal, Norwegian black metal was a fundamental movement that became an underground source for new extreme music for metalheads. Moving away from the excessive double bass drum beats of thrash, incorporating the screaming growls of death metal and the first wave of black metal, these artists of Norwegian black metal pioneered a new scene that would later inspire future bands from a wide divide of genres. With the underpinning set by Darkthrone, Burzum, Mayhem and Immortal, black metal had mutated into a new viable option for metalheads.
With death metal and black metal taking the dominant underground dwelling for the fans, the grunge movement would be followed in the mainstream by new metal in the late 90s. The stomping shred riffs of old thrash from the 1980s seemed to be gone forever. However, as the 20th century took its last breaths, the beginning of the new millennium established the initiation of the reappearance and revival of a new generation of thrash metal. Out of Gothenburg and beginning in the 90s were a group of bands that were following in the footsteps of the work by Pantera and Sepultura, together with the sensibilities of the death metal movement. The Gothenburg sound of the first Swedish death metal undertakings was the successful amalgamation of the harder metal-edged music with the melody of Sweden's long culture of pop music. It was the foundation, the very beginnings, of melodic death metal. But then again, central to the works of the Gothenburg scene was thrash. While the groups were encompassing the likes of groove metal and death metal, the very pure core beginnings of melodic death metal were the underpinnings of the thrash movement from the 1980s. Hard-edged shredding riffs with the incorporation of the double bass sequence and some of the socio-political commentary and lyrics, though relevant to the era of time. At first, kicking out in their local scene in 1989, Dark Tranquility was the first of several Swedish death metal groups that began this new hybridization that included thrash elements. Followed by the appearance of At The Gates and In Flames, the bands collectively began searching for successfully bringing further melodic aspects to the metal. In essence, they were continuing in the footsteps of what Metallica began with Ride The Lightning and Master Of Puppets in the 80s pushing their music to new levels by staying true to the brutal edge of metal, but by letting it evolve into new level of dynamics with melody. of melodic death continued to be fairly popular in Sweden and Europe during the late 90s, but it would be the 2000s when they cracked through onto the world stage. At the Gates album Slaughter of the Soul from 1995 would be reissued in 2002 because of snowballing positive reception outside of Sweden, while In Flames found their roots in worldwide success with 2000's Clayman, followed by 2002's Reroute to Remain. By 2005, metalcore was already on its direction to popularity while the metal scene at large was diversifying into further acceptance of a vast and extensive range of subgenres. The metalhead community continued to find relevance in the death metal and black metal and their deviations in age, but melodic death metal was about to break into the mainstream, with an album release from one of Sweden's innovators. Fronted by Angelo Gosso, Arch Enemy were contemporaries with At The Gates and In Flames, but by 2005 they had developed their style into a sound that was extremely popular among thrash fans, the melodic death metal scene, but also with the metalcore fans as well. With the release of the iconic Doomsday Machine CD, though received with mixed critical reactions initially, came several songs that would continue the legacy of Thrash, such as My Apocalypse and Nemesis. Yeah. 
out of Canada. A young vocalist with guitar proficiency got his big break when he got the gig to record and tour with Steam Vai. Following the album release of Sex and Religion, Devin Townsend would move forward with a solo career that continues strongly to this day, advancing the boundaries of progressive metal. However, in the mid-90s, Townsend joined forces with Gene Hoagland of Dark Angel after developing an experiment that was called Strapping Young Lad. The experiment proved to be a brutal wall of noise, and by the closing stages of the final decade of the 20th century, Strapping Young Lad was a full-blown band that would move into a booming run during the 2000s, keeping the thrash sound alive, combined with the likes of early melodic death metal and the extreme metal styles. It was Devin Townsend and Strapping Young Lad bringing the aggressive thrash edge back to metal with their breakthrough album City in 1997 and into the 2000s with the hurrying shred of the tune Detox. With the rise of death metal and black metal and the consequent rise of bands like Strapping Young Lad and the groups from the Swedish death metal scene, the basic aspects of thrash stayed a part of their sounds through the 1990s and into the 2000s. Little did these bands know, in consort with the original thrash bands coupled with the likes of Pantera and Sepultura, that their efforts in keeping the elements of thrash budding and in keeping metal heavy, that they would inspire a new generation of thrash metal bands. Although the first scene originated in the Bay Area of San Francisco, thrash metal would have its revival across the ocean in the United Kingdom. A new generation of bands keeping true to the original characteristics of the thrash style, but unafraid to incorporate melody and dynamics where needed, began developing a deep-seated underground scene, and before long, the rest of the world began to take notice. Looming from West Yorkshire in 2004, Evile would be one of the first UK bands to deliver the attack of the thrash renaissance with a distinguished accomplishment on their debut album Enter the Grave, having it produced by the same man responsible for the early Metallica albums, Fleming Rasmussen. By the third album, Five Serpents Teeth, in 2011, Evile had cracked into the worldwide metal setting, evoking the likes of the Big Four with their own characterised musical identity in the form of the song cult.
formed of members from both the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, another band would help strengthen the thrash resurgence by embracing the styles of Creator and Sodom with a dash of punk and hardcore too. While Evile focused on the traditional lyrical sensibilities of old-school thrash, this group were more interested in the pop culture they grew up with, focusing on horror films, sci-fi movies, action flicks, video games and cartoons with a tendency to return to zombie themes. This band's name was Gamma Bomb. continued the resurgence of thrash by correspondingly dealing with songs about the future or sci-fi, but with a grim rudiment of the socio-political responsiveness of the original thrash bands. SSS kept the hybridization of classic crossover alive when they surfaced from Liverpool, while Silosis appeared out of Reading, and delivered music also focusing on forbidding futures and the self-destruction of humankind. Simultaneously, back in the USA, a hardcore death metal band emerging from the ashes of a 1990s group named Burn the Priest began blazing a trail onto the 2000s, basing their music off the original thrash movement, especially with bulky influence from Overkill's and Testament's material, and following in the groundwork established by Pantera and Strapping Young Lad, it would be Lamb of God that would establish a new scene that was dubbed by Sam Dunn as the new wave of American metal. Bringing together a major following with the Devon Townsend-produced As the Palaces Burn in 2003, Lamb of God would burst through with 2004's Ashes of the Wake and forever change the landscape of American metal.
Lamb of God were trailblazing the new scene across the United States. At the same time, California's Warbringer was delivering the thrash renaissance established by Evil and the United Kingdom bands to an American audience. After forming in 2004, the band was signed to Century Media not long afterwards and put out their debut album, War Without End, in 2008. The first release was welcomed from fans, but it would be their second album in 2009 that would cement Warbringer as one of the important bands of the neo-thrash movement, drawing the attention of Exodus founder and guitarist Gary Holt. The artist recorded the album, Waking Into Nightmares, with Holt as their producer. American metal in full swing as a result of Lamb of God and the thrash revival hitting the US with Warbringer, another band would bring forth an element of the thrash renaissance by embracing another subgenre as well that had reached its peak. By mixing elements of original thrash with aspects of black metal, Ohio's Skeleton Witch would be fundamental in being one of the formative bands to perfect what has now become known as blackened thrash metal. In the course of the 1990s and 2000s, bands like Belfagor and Behemoth had successfully combined elements of death metal with black metal, in a style now referred to as blackened death metal. Shadowing in these footsteps, Skeleton Witch, in addition to Australia's Destroyer 666 and Norway's Oro Noir, amalgamated the darkened concepts and sound of black metal with the riff-heavy solidarity of thrash, all built on the ground strongly influenced by the original new wave of British heavy metal. After some foundational releases in the early 2000s, Skeleton Witch's crucial release would be their 2007 album that set the standards for the future of black and thrash metal. It was named Beyond the Permafrost. Oh 
Along a similar vein to Gamma Bomb from the UK and Ireland, in the United States it would be municipal waste that would perpetuate the substance of crossover into the American thrash revival. Dragging heavy influences from suicidal tendencies and anthrax, the band would, like Gamma Bomb, focus on mutants and the undead and sci-fi elements. But the key core strength of municipal waste would be their humorous and metatextual approach to their music. From Thrashing's My Business and Business is Good to The Thrashing of the Christ, Municipal Waste have been renowned to be the comedic thrash band that writes comedic thrash music about comedic thrash. Municipal Waste were to bring another defining element to the resurgence of thrash, it would have to be with affections to album art. Like Gamma Bomb, the band's album and EP releases feature detailed artwork that equally harkens back to the classic thrash albums of the 1980s, but also from the sci-fi and horror movies of the same era. Similarly, American band Toxic Holocaust would accomplish the same approach with their Hell on Earth release, while Decapitator encompassed the same spirit on their Storm Before the Calm album art. Indeed, by 2011, it looked like that a strong characteristic among the new thrash movement were colourful, exhaustive and meticulous album covers that simultaneously recalled the styles of artwork of Master of Puppets or Spreading the Disease and similarly establishing a connection to the future in a simple artistic message that stated clearly, thrash metal is never going away. Meanwhile, the thrash revival endured into the 2010s in the United States with bands like Lazarus AD and Vector releasing notable songs grabbing the attention of metalheads. Bonded by Blood and Merciless Death would establish their careers by christening themselves after thrash song titles of note from the original scene, while Colorado's Havoc unified elements of the early Bay Area thrash with the new elements from the modern era. <laughs>
Thanks to strapping young lad, Lamb of God, Pantera, the bands of the Swedish melodic death metal development, and many others, thrash metal experienced a major resurgence in the first two decades of the 2000s in the United States and in the United Kingdom. And like the early days of thrash during the 80s, the new thrash renaissance started propagating across the world, grabbing the soul of the new thrash resurgence, but stimulated strongly by Sepultura and Dorsal Atlantica, Violator from Brazil maintained the solid sound of their national metal scene. By embracing similar attitudes to musical approach and to their album cover artwork, Violator re-established thrash as an international phenomenon with their 2006 album, Chemical Assault, and its opening tune, Atomic Nightmare. movement was dispersed to Greece with the band Suicidal Angels while Blood Tsunami kept the movement alive in Norway. And as Colombia's Witch Trap kept South American thrash alive, across the other side of the planet in Denmark, Essence also continued to bring the new thrash assault to the fans. Down under, in Australia, metal groups also began bringing forth the new age of thrash while simultaneously incorporating elements of black metal and melodic death metal. Trailing in the footsteps of Mortal Sin, Destroyer 666 and Allegiance, Bands like In Malice's Wake from Melbourne were encompassing the socio-political commentary in their lyrics and albums such as The Thrashening. Featured on our last episode, Sacrifice would command a unique Aussie black and thrash perspective of World War I, while Sydney's Tourette's slipped in industrial and groove metal elements into their sound. On top of that, Perth's Grave Forsaken conveyed Christian metal into the new generation of thrash, while also bringing thoughtful though religious-oriented observations into modern social concerns, such as in the song Affluenza.
As the first decade of the 21st century was drawing to a close, another of the founders of the Swedish melodic death metal scene came into their worldwide standing. Coming from an 18-year career of solid music and writing on their dedicated following from Europe, the band known as Amon Amarth were beginning to shape up and reinvigorate what was known as Viking metal during the 2000s, to an enormous reception from North American audiences and beyond. While their first few albums were favorably regarded through the decade, it was the release of their album Twilight of the Thunder God that propelled them into recognition across the world. Amonomarth had continued the forging manner of Swedish metal with the combination of styles by embracing the Norse mythology and Viking metal ideology, but keeping their core basis leveled in the origins of both death metal and thrash. <laughs> Also, back in the home of the origins of melodic death metal, Sweden saw an additional band come to notice in the 2000s that began meshing together components of all of the bands reviving thrash. Even though they were originally formed in 1987, FKU, which stands for Freddy Krueger's Underwear, broke up in 1988 but reunited in 1997. In the following decade, FKU began embracing the horror themes and comedic humour into their mosh-fueled noise, inspired by Evile, Municipal Waste, Gamma Bomb, SOD, Anthrax, and Metallica. With the difficulty of being a band that lost ground and broke up with little notable releases at the end of the peak of original thrash, by 2013, FKU had become the comeback story of the new thrash scene and secured their unique musical identity with the release of their album, Rise of the Moshmongers.
similar story of comeback success over in Germany. Thrash metal outfit Accuser enjoyed minor success locally in the 1990s after their formation in 1986. But by 1995, the band was struggling to maintain relevance with the shifting musical landscape and broke up. Sensing that something was brewing in the metal scene, Accuser reformed in the 2000s, demoed new material, and toured across Germany. In 2010, they released their comeback album, Agitation, to much praise from critics and metalheads alike. As they rediscovered a second win for their career, it would be 2013's Diabolic that would prove to be character-defining for them, which contained the song Cannibal Insanity. Accusers' respective rebirths into the new scene were actually symbolic of the old-school cool coming back into the forefront of thrash as well. Slayer had maintained their sound and stayed true to their roots throughout their career and fell right into place with the rise of bands like Lamb of God and Evil. Likewise, Overkill had correspondingly stayed true to their form and sound and enjoyed notice from the new bands and their fans with their albums in the 2010s. Noticing the turn of the tide, Gary Holt restored Exodus in 2004 and the band have continued releasing albums regularly over the last decade. In Germany, Creator also reveled in the benefits of the resurgence with 2009's Hordes of Chaos and 2012's Phantom Antichrist, while their colleague Sodom also performed admirably in the new century, with notable attention to their 2010 In War and Pieces release. After their final album with John Bush in 2003, Anthrax reunited with vocalist Joey Belladonna in 2011 for the release of their most recent album, Worship Music, a comprehensive return to form that embraces and mashes up the band's early thrash roots with their 90s solid metal groove, but also with an eruptive crunchy atmosphere that drew much influence from the horror-inspired bands of the thrash revival, as demonstrated in their zombie apocalypse song, Fight Until You Can't. City authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living.
Megadeth also saw a return to form in a similar vein to Anthrax, where Dave Mustaine guided the group into successfully returning to the progressive thrash power of Rust in Peace while retaining the melodious viability of Countdown to Extinction. After the release of United Abominations in 2007 and Endgame in 2009, original bassist Dave Ellison rejoined Megadeth, citing a new productive era for the band. But if any of the original thrashers benefited the most from the new thrash resurgence, it was testament. With bands such as Lamb of God, Arch Enemy and Violator naming the group as a major influence, the group reformed in 2008 after a nine-year hiatus, releasing one of the most substantial and most relevant albums they've ever written, The Formation of Damnation. The album would be followed by the largely critically praised Dark Roots of the Earth in 2012, but it would be the previous 2008 album that contained the hard-hitting and unflinching retelling of 9-11, The Evil Has Landed. With the emergence of Strapping Young Lad, the rise of melodic death metal, and the resurgence of new thrash from the UK, plus the new wave of American metal, the new scene also seemed to be a fruitful comeback period for the original old school thrashers as well. But with the return of all the old thrashers, what about Metallica? The band responsible for the creation of thrash metal progressed in the 1990s with the more experimental and commercial releases of Load and Reload with some other cover albums and live recording ventures as well. But, as we mentioned in our previous Thrash examinations, Metallica had been cursed with the sellout accuser experience. From the beginning of their career, Metallica were labelled as sellouts by disapproving fans and a vicious cycle of criticism would follow them with each subsequent album release. With every new release, another surge of fans would join in the sellout movement, while conversely, the rising success of each new album would bring the band even more fans. This progression reached a peak in 2003 when Metallica put out Saint Anger. Though attempting to make a heavier album, the band were misguided with internal friction and addiction issues, while producer Bob Rock's guidance of the album was below par compared to his earlier production credits. While the album sold relatively well, it was harshly panned by critics, fans and even other bands. Although Saint Anger was a step back towards a heavier Metallica compared to the Black and Load releases, its poor production and poor mixing was a low point in the band's history. Some kind of monster. In spite of the disparagements, Metallica soldier on as if it was the same old attacks from the sellout movement, but as seen in their documentary Some Kind of Monster, the band was heavily disillusioned during the time, and it was only near the end of recording and mixing 
that they realized what direction they needed to be heading in. The consequence of the revised focus was evidenced on the release of 2008's Death Magnetic. Considered to be a combination of And Justice For All and The Black Album by many critics, Metallica's follow-up to St. Anger was a true return to form. As always, the band faced controversy with regards to mixing, and certainly there were the ever-growing sellout movement fans, but this album saw a return to the convoluted technical approaches the band had embraced on Master of Puppets and Justice for All, while continuing the appealing melody approach established on the Black Album. Return to form of Metallica and the rest of the founding thrash groups, and the continued success of the newer bands from the thrash renaissance, the question that comes to mind is, what's in store for the future? Over two decades ago, as the music landscape shifted, with the rise of grunge and the changing sounds of Metallica's landmark Black Album release, thrash was in danger of dying. The limitations of being able to voyage beyond the heavy shredding riffs and the double bass attack became monotonous and began to restrain the artists from developing beyond the style they had developed. At that time, it seemed thrash had a shelf life. So what we want to know is, is the return of old school cool and the emergence of new school styles for thrash in the danger of facing the same threshold? If Encyclopedia Metallum is anything to go by, then the answer is a reverberating no. A search in the metal database for thrash bands formed in 2013 and 2014 results in over 200 results from locations around the world including El Salvador, Costa Rica, Bosnia, Italy, Peru, Spain, as well as the US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Norway, and more. With these 200 plus bands and more to come carrying the torch forward, it seems to me that thrash is indeed here to stay, especially with the likes of groups such as Armatus, Four Sweaty Dudes in a Room, Varg Skeletor, La Flamme d'Agni, and the Bath Salt Zombies.
precisely is thrash metal headed into 2015 and beyond? The elements of humour injected into the tales shredded about zombies or horror or sci-fi or pop culture will almost certainly continue, as it's been a staple of the genre since its inception. But if I were to wager where the sturdier material will be focusing in the future, it will most likely be in the realm of relevant socio-political commentary for the current age. With the deteriorating economy continuing to place increasing stress on the middle class and those in poverty across both Europe and the Americas, the setting is ripe for revolution-style music standing up against all that is wrong in the world. Scandals and insincerity are rife and at an all-time high in the European Union and the United States political systems. The ever-increasing gap between the rich aristocratic CEO elitist classes and the poorer levels of humanity are more evident than ever with the rise of the Occupy movement and the continuing hacktivism of Anonymous. Then, of course, there is also the overwhelming student loan debt on graduates being spat out into employment searches resulting in joblessness and also a rising tendency among certain so-called activists demanding speech be controlled, lest ye risk being a trigger or characterized as a conspiracy theorist nutjob. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're an irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies. So they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club and you ain't in it. <laughs> you and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. 
Good, honest, hardworking people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hardworking people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all, at all, at all. Man, you know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. So there's a lot of negative emotion out there currently. And with the newer bands adding elements of black metal, melodic death metal, and other subgenre attributes into the core elements of thrash and crossover, the style is the perfect method to channel belligerence and protest through the music, just like the second generation of hardcore bands like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys accomplished for the earliest of the thrash bands. In fact, we can see foundations of this emerging in some of the current thrash bands that are breathing new life into the scene. For example, Battlecross came into prominence at the beginning of the 2010s despite having been formed in 2003. Comprising the elements of melodic death metal around a core of thrash, the band have also combined the groove metal sentiments of Pantera and Lamb of God into their songs, giving rise to a unique hybridized sound of pure aggression. Furthermore, the band label themselves as blue-collar metal, springing from their backgrounds, but also from the solid content they focus on in their lyrics. With vast observations made from social commentary, it looks to me that Battlecross are establishing a setting and trend that will become popular with other existing, new, and future thrash bands to come, as evidenced in their song, Force-Fed Lies. With the revolution of blue-collar metal coming from the influence of merging thrash with the likes of death metal and other genres, the prospect of thrash metal is in safe hands with the newer generation. And with the current socio-political environment the way it is, I think it's safe to say that as long as there's a metal, there's always going to be a thrash. Now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. In the days of early metal, bands like Kiss and Queen placed an extraordinarily formative influence on the young thrash musicians that would arise in the 1980s but it would be Black Sabbath that would grasp the crown of core metal influence for many of them, and songs like Sabbath Bloody Sabbath would demonstrate to be highly cited favourites for the bands to come. But out of Black Sabbath's catalogue, another song set itself as a major influence for thrash, also credited as being partly responsible for inspiring elements of Diamond Head's Am I Evil, the Sabbath song Symptom of the Universe from the 1975 album Sabotage, would be an additional weapon in the armory for the thrashers yet to come. Let's take a listen. Sabotage 
And now, let's take a glance at this week in metal news. It has not been a very good Thanksgiving week for Megadeth, as following the departure of Chris Broderick and Sean Drover from the band lineup last week, news arose that the body of Dave Mustaine's missing mother-in-law had been discovered. Sally Estabrook, who went missing on October 4, was found half a mile from the campsite from where she went missing. American hard rockers Hailstorm have announced they've finished recording their third album, the follow-up to 2012's The Strange Case of Hailstorm. A release date is set to be revealed in the near future, while the band continues supporting Eric Church on the Outsiders World Tour. After several native advertising pieces implanted in news over the last 12 months, it's finally been revealed that the officially authorised documentary on the life and death of Kurt Cobain from Nirvana is in the process of production. Entitled Montage of Heck and set for release in 2015 on HBO, the documentary is being directed by Brett Morgan and executively produced by Cobain's daughter, Frances, and production had begun with the blessing of Courtney Love. The movie is said to include previously unheard and unreleased Nirvana material. Ace Frehley is already making noises about his next solo album. The founding member and original guitarist of KISS has stated his next release will be a covers album featuring a combination of songs he's always wanted to cover, plus some solo reworkings of KISS songs such as Parasite. Freely plans to have guests appear on the next album, including Slash, Mike McCready, Lita Ford, and more, though there is no news of any potential recording schedule or release date at this time. A former drum tech for Slipknot has unveiled the identities of the newest band members. By posting a photo of a tour itinerary online, it's been revealed that the new Slipknot drummer is Jay Weinberg from the punk group Against Me, and is also the son of Max Weinberg, the drummer from the E Street Band. The bass guitarist has been identified as Alessandro V-Man Venturella, who had previously worked as a guitar tech for Mastodon and Coheed in Cambria, as well as performing guitar for British group Crocodile. Drum tech Norm Costa uploaded the itinerary of the band after he was recently relieved of his duties. Napalm Death have revealed more details for their upcoming January 27 album release. Entitled Apex Predator Easy Meat, The new album cover artwork is a bit of a departure for the band, being a little bit more on the gory side like Early Carcass, though the original band logo has made a standout appearance on the cover. There are 14 tracks on the album, including Smash a Single Digit, Timeless Flogging, and Dear Slum Landlord, while the track named Cesspits is currently available for preview, streaming over at SoundCloud. Chuck Billy from Testament has announced that fans will now have the chance to own shares of the song Native Blood from the band's 2012 Dark Roots of the Earth album. While the offering on the New York Rock Exchange offers some direct exclusives, the shares offered are quoted to be for entertainment only, are not securities, and do not provide any financial stake in the music. One might argue, what's the point? Meanwhile, down in New Zealand, Dirty Deeds are Back in handcuffs, ACDC drummer Phil Rudd has been arrested after, according to a witness, he was out and bloody dancing around and carrying on and was arrested and led back to the cop car and driven away. No charges have been filed against Rudd, but the latest incident follows troubled unrest for the drummer after being charged for threatening to kill and for possession of drugs. A murder for hire charge had also been filed but has since been dropped. Judge Tom Ingram has ruled that Rudd's case may be a judge-alone event in 2015 following his next hearing on February 10, meaning there will be no jury. While ACDC progresses forward with the release of Rock or Bust, it seems that Phil Rudd just keeps getting busted. 
And good news for all the American Iron Maiden fans out there. Vocalist Bruce Dickinson and the band have announced they will be selling their Trooper beer in the United States in 2015. Beginning in January, metalheads will be able to get their grubby mitts on the Trooper in 500ml Tallboy cans. Though only 300,000 cans will be made available at first, so if you spot them, drink them if they've got them. And finally, in our unusual story this week, Otto Schimmelpenning of Dutch symphonic metal band Delane reported on recovering from an unusual injury this week after a performance in Birmingham. Schimmelpenning wrote to his fans on Facebook, quote, As some of you know, we use streamer cannons, which shoot silver streamers into the audience, usually during the song The Gathering. We've been using this for ages without any problems at all, but in Birmingham, things went wrong. In my enthusiasm, I did not pay attention and happened to be very close when the streamer cannon fired. It hit me from the back, in my genitals. After the show, the damage was more obvious. My scrotum was the size of a big grapefruit, and I was in a lot of pain. I was taken to the nearest hospital where, after hours and hours of waiting, I was finally operated around 8.30 in the morning. It appeared here my left testicle had been ruptured, as well as some arteries. More than half a litre of blood was removed from my scrotum, and my testicle was stitched up. Ouch! Furthermore, he says, I was very close to losing my left testicle, but chances are good it will be fine. Well, there's nothing more metal than finishing a gig on stage while dealing with a swollen, ruptured testicle. Perhaps the band should consider covering a song from the Tesla album, Bust a Nut. Links to the show news can be found at heavymetal666.com and if you come across any awesome metal news, please share it with us at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, the latest controversy surrounding the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri by police officer Darren Wilson followed by the unrest of protests, rioting, looting, and arson in the streets, caused many to recall the events of the LA race riots from 1992. Metal is frequently influenced by major historical events, including the mayhem of social unrest, and the groups and songs that came after that time were of no exception. We turn back the clock and look at the Los Angeles race riots of 1992 and heavy metal. Keep up with us by subscribing to the show at iTunes or Stitcher, Follow us on Facebook or at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter and send us a message if there's a topic you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to research or report on or if you've got questions you would like for us to answer. You can also find me on the Blendover Podcast over at blendover.com and we'll see you on the next Heavy Metal Historian. Hails and horns. And until next time, an element that has turned out to be more perspicuous among some of the newer thrash bands has been a tendency to hold a more comedic or humorous side to the music. Highly inspired by the likes of Stormtroopers of Death, Anthrax and the suicidal tendencies, but correspondingly influenced by the antics of groups from the newer thrash revivals such as Gamma Bomb and Municipal Waste, some of the up-and-coming thrashers are embracing this comedic humor within the subgenre and pushing it to the next level. Missing the parody-style satire of a Spinal Tap or a Steel Panther, these bands embed the humor firmly into their form, embodying a new version of musical identity. One such artist embracing this philosophy is a Vinesource Live video game streamer from Sweden by the name of Joel, who is frequently releasing solo thrash material of the humorous variety in a project called Varg Skeletor. In the project, Varg Skeletor's debut release surpassed anal cunt sung titles with tunes such as 
I'll create a teleportation device just to punch you in the face out of nowhere. And you're only invested in politics because you're attracted to Barack Obama. Whilst the follow-up EP called Skeleton Metal caricatured and ridiculed the rising trends of zombies and pirates in heavy metal, Varg Skeletor's most recent release is also of no exception, proving once and for all that while there are the serious, socio-political commentaries or journeys into sci-fi horror fiction with other bands, there's also the other side of the continuum when all you need is just a good laugh. On his latest release over at Bandcamp, here is Varg Skeletor with our closing headbanger called Pint of... Is this dime? Is this right? Is this is this what the title is? But I like pineapples on pizza. Are we going to go with this? Okay, pineapples do not belong on pizza. I say they do. Okay, let me do that again. On his latest release over at Bandcamp, here is Varg Skeletor with our closing headbanger called "Pineapples Do Not Belong on a Pizza." <laughs> 